The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me invite you to open with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. And uh, I, I told you last week that we were in something of a two-part reality. And just to catch you up to speed of exactly where that is, we're in Colossians 2 verse 8. And we are taking a pause to take something of a scenic route detour. Last week, we looked at, to Paul's words to the church at Colossae, and we tried to unpack chapter 2, verse 8, uh, relative to the first of three warnings that are found in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul was saying, Watch out! He was issuing a word of warning to the church, and what we said last week is that we would unpack it according to the context originally last week in the first century, and that we would endeavor to apply chapter 2, verse 8 specifically to our world today. Now, usually we can do this kind of all in one, but this word seems so relevant and so necessary to give special attention to that we endeavor, Lord willing, to do that today with specific application to the particular time and particular place in which we are living. So, I will say to you that last fall, when I mapped out the expositional series in Colossians, I had always intended to take this detour, but that it ends up on Mother's Day is a mysterious providence of God to which I leave to His infinite wisdom and I don't attempt to alter it. So, uh, actually, God oftentimes has us in unique expositional places on these specific holidays. Nevertheless, we are where we are, and here where we are, we need to hear the Word of God. So, uh, join with me as we pray and ask God's illuminating blessing upon the Scriptures. Gracious God, uh, we pause now as we open up the Word of God asking for your divine aid and help. Lord, we need you. We need your Spirit to come upon us to illuminate our minds that we might understand, believe, and rightfully receive the truth that you have given here to us. And Lord, specifically we pray today for an extra measure of grace and help for me as I proclaim and for us all as we sit under the authority of your Word. Bless it to us today that we might be a people of truth, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now hear the word of God. Again, Colossians 2.8, just the one verse. This is the word of God, Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever, so may He write its eternal truth on our hearts. If you were not here last week, or you have not uh, taken up the opportunity to hear, uh, last week's recording is available online, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. It's, it is important that you get a hold of it, especially because you are here today. So uh, let me introduce this uh, to you by giving you an illustration that is often used. Uh, a parent is walking their child through a strawberry patch and coming upon a beautiful, fresh 
strawberry, seeing it beautiful red. They pick it up. The parent eats it. It's fresh. It's sweet. It's the real deal. You've had a fresh garden strawberry before. You know exactly what that tastes like. Uh, But then they hand it to their child, and they're not sure. Well, the strawberry, things happen to the strawberry, doesn't it? It gets preserved. It gets made into jam. It's processed. It begins to not look like it used to look like. It begins to not taste like it used to taste like. It's given to the child then in the form of the essence of strawberry without actually being strawberry in the form of strawberry flavoring. Eventually, the parent no longer takes the child through the strawberry patch, and instead of handing the child a fresh strawberry, they hand them strawberry slush that doesn't have any strawberries in it at all. It has colors and chemicals and high fructose corn syrup, but it is not a strawberry. It isn't nutritious at all, but the child grows to love the imitation. And then one day, the parent is taking the child back through the strawberry patch, goes to pick up another fresh strawberry, picks it up, hands it to the child, and the child doesn't like it because it doesn't taste like what they know to be strawberry, which is actually imitation. They think it's gross. I offer that to you as an illustration, what is often used as an illustration of actually what I think is happening to the truth of God's Word in an increasingly secular age. When we are at risk of losing the sense of the beauty and the goodness and the sweetness and the loveliness of the truth of God's Word in a world of highly processed imitation food that is being attempted to be fed to us but is actually not nutritious either for body or soul, but that is actually not good for us. So, what is Paul saying in Colossians 2.8? Very briefly as a review of what he's saying in Colossians 2.8, Paul is issuing a warning to this young church in Colossae that for all of their faithfulness that they have been giving to Jesus Christ, the apostle is concerned about what lays ahead for them if they are taken captive. So the admonition, the command, the imperative in chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive. Paul wants Christian believers to be captive to Jesus Christ, to be given over to the Lord by way of faith and loving obedience, not other things other things that threaten them to take them captive and have them be captive not according to Christ, but that which is empty and false. Literally, when Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive, the word literally means see to it that no one captures you into slavery. See to it that literally nobody carries you off or to be led captive. And the means by that might happen by philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, elemental spirits. We unpacked what that meant. But he's talking about the wisdom of the age that is contrary to the wisdom of Jesus Christ. 
and in the first century, the wisdom of that age might be a particular teaching or dogma, but as the church hears the apostles' teachings, the varied wisdom of the ages might change, which is why we're talking today with specific application to the wisdom that is present in this age. But what the apostle Paul is doing is he is contrasting here the wisdom that is shifting and changing and built upon an uncertain foundation in contrast to the wisdom of Jesus Christ, which is eternal, unchanging, and built on a sure foundation. The Apostle Paul is saying, the shifting, changing wisdom of the age threatens to take you captive. So here's the word that we are pursuing today. Paul's warning in 2 verse 8 is specifically and intentionally, I believe, broad so that it can be specifically applied as we ask the question, what are the influences and elemental spirits and popular traditions and ethics that are at present in the world today that threaten to take us captive? So, The question is even more specific when we note that Paul's warning is about being taken captive, and we can understand that word in two different senses. Just note that this notion of captivity can be understood in two ways. Uh, The word in Greek is sulagogeo, and it means to be carried off or led captive, but it means it in one of two ways, and one of which might be immediately obvious, but the second of which I think is more specific and I think more helpful. The first way that we can be led captive is if we are forcibly carried off. That is to say, literally taken captive and drug against our will. This is captivity in the sense of upfront intentionality. I am going to take you and capture you. Uh, That's obvious and dangerous, but it is obvious. For example, somebody might say, it's my intention to lead you astray, and now I'm going to lead you astray with my intent to lead you astray. But the other way of understanding this notion of being led captive is in the sense of deception. In the first sense, it is an obvious, dangerous intent to say, it is my purpose to lead you astray, follow me as I lead you astray. In the second sense, the word lead captive is a deceiving sense of saying, come this way because it's good for you. Come this way because it's right. Come this way because it'll give you happiness. There is a sense of leading captive that is obviously intended to destroy and upfront let you know, but there is a more deceptive sense of being led captive in a way that puts a banner in front of it and says, this is the way to really go, but eventually leads you into captivity and slavery, and the danger is that you go willingly because it said, this is the way to go. So I'm emphasizing here the pressures that can take captive the pressures that come often as riptide that slowly and quietly pull us away from solid ground, all the while trying to say, this is good, this is right, this is the way you should go, this is the right side of history. So, what, what are those pressures? Now, I have been turning over in my head for months exactly how to approach this. I've been talking with others about it and seeking wisdom about how to specifically approach the situation. And I decided that rather than 
lining things up and one at a time addressing various issues or topics, I want to first of all point to a helpful resource that I think can help Christians understand and, and, and kind of reflect on their particular time and place. Culturally, it's a very accessible book called The Secular Creed. The Secular Creed, written by Rebecca McLaughlin. In that, she engages uh, various different rallying cries that we hear in the world today that she solidifies and codifies as the secular creed, meaning these are the lists of statements that must be agreed to in the world today, and they are things like love is love, gay rights are civil rights, women's rights are human rights, and transgender women are women. She takes each one of those, unpacks it specifically, and asks the question, how does the church interact? How should the church speak? How should the church understand? It's a very balanced and helpful approach to the Christian to engage critically what I think exactly the Apostle Paul is talking about in terms of these various traditions in Colossians 2.8. So rather than doing what I think she already does in a better way, I want to rather take the approach of something of a diagnostician and say that there is a difference between a presenting symptom and a root cause. There is a difference between a presenting symptom and a root cause. So, for example, several weeks ago, I had influenza. Rather than treating the symptoms, I took Tamiflu and addressed the virus. In the same way, there are varied presenting symptoms in the world today of what the Apostle Paul is saying, philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world. But all of those things present themselves in the world for the same reason and at the same root cause. So, what are the symptoms and what is the root cause? Or another way of saying it is, where are we and how did we get here? Now, I need you to to suffer a bit of an extended explanation to get to our point of the root cause by first demonstrating the symptoms. And I'll introduce this by saying that I teach a Bible study over in Alito at Brookstone, and I'm quite convinced, I think, that the youngest person there is in their 90s. So, uh, they laughed at me last week when I told them how old I was, and they just literally just laughed at me. Uh, and and I, I say that because I'm going to paint with some very broad strokes here, but I want you to come with me on something of an understanding of generations. Those folks in Alito, all in their 90s, they represent a major generational shift in American culture moving from what is known as the greatest generation those born in 1901 to 1927, those people who came of age during the Great Depression and then World War II, they were nation builders. There are also the silent generation born 1928 to 1945 who were young adults during the 1950s who participated in the Korean conflict. And I mention those two generations because those are, I would argue, the last two generations for which it was generally a given that one should listen to, respect, and receive the institutions of their culture without question. Or another way of saying it is, they obeyed their parents, generally. Now that could not be said, though I love you, 
of the baby boomer generation born between 1946 and 1964 who came of age during a very culturally tumultuous years which instilled in this generation a rising anti-institutionalism, anti-authority, protest-oriented social disobedience that was to them a necessary disregarding of cultural norms that were seen as a form of oppression and exchanged that for a free expression and free love counterculture. That was revolutionary. And what is important to note is that the authority that was largely rebelled against in that generation was an external authority. Institutions, government, schools, church, family, external institutions. The next two successive generations, the children of the baby boomers, Generation X and Millennials, have seen in my lifetime a new level of anti-authority where no longer is it external institutions, church, state, parents, etc., that those institutions don't get to define reality for me, but even now internal institutions no longer have an authority over me in such a way, meaning even my own body doesn't get to tell me what to do. So, no longer are we anti-institutional with regard to external authority, but now also internal authority, my own body. And what has resulted from this is a meteoric rise in Gen Z, born between 97 to 2012, where they have inherited a language of self-actualization, talking about who they really are and understanding that personal identity is entirely subjective, regardless of cultural norms, external institutions, regardless even of internal norms, my own biology, such that I can say I am whoever I say I am, and that is somehow meaningful. All that to say, this is not a sociology lecture. But I am trying to identify what we're seeing in the world today and the notion of personal identity, I am whoever I say I am, has given rise to statements that are now indisputably a part of the secular creed. And if you don't agree, approve, and celebrate, you are a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal. People are yearning for authenticity, desiring to express who they really are, and anything that stands in the way of this is a form of violence and oppression against them as they actualize their true self. Those are all presenting symptoms. You see it, and so do I. You're concerned about it for various reasons, and so am I, but they're all presenting symptoms. I want to ask, what is the root cause? What is the root cause? What is this essential demand for autonomy that lives in such a way that says, I get to say and nobody else? Come with me to the book of Genesis and come with me into chapter 3 and I'm hearing a voice in my head saying, Zach, you always go to Genesis chapter 3 and the answer is, I know. Because it explains the world to us. In Genesis chapter 3, what we have is the world that God has made, which is perfectly good, perfectly right, perfectly holy and just and beautiful and satisfying and lovely and good, is a world that God made for Adam and Eve to live in and respond to God, their maker, with loving obedience, doing as He gives for their joy and for their good. 
But the major issue that we find in Genesis chapter 3, look at Genesis 3 and verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, not to rehearse to you all of the details of Genesis 3 and the importance of the fall of man here, but I do want you to notice that the essence of Satan's temptation in verse 5 was to communicate to Eve, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When he was sowing doubt into Eve's heart, saying, did God really say the essence of the temptation was to try to get Eve to believe that God's law and God's word and God's ways are a hindrance to your real joy. That by disobeying God, you'll have what He's keeping from you. Happiness, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, fill in the blanks. He is keeping from you that which is a greater delight to you. And so throw off that authority. Be a law unto yourself, Eve. Take the fruit. It's right that you do so. And here's the point. Our first parents were deceived into thinking that they were reaching for freedom but they were actually reaching for bondage. And that's exactly Paul's point in Colossians 2, 8, isn't it? Deceived into slavery, deceived into bondage, thinking that you're reaching for freedom, thinking that you're throwing off constraints when in reality you're taking on bondage. We know that it was not real freedom. They were taken captive, enslaved by spiritual death. And this is a parallel reality. Here is the great lie. The great lie is that God's way will not bring you your greatest happiness. The lie is that God's way is a hindrance to your true joy. The lie is that God's truth is an obstacle to your real happiness. Now, that means the reason why we believe what the Bible teaches about sex, gender, marriage and all of the host of associated ethics that come with it is not because we are inheriting the relics of a culture, but because God's Word says so. And God, the Creator, knows what is best for His creation, and as the Creator, it is His divine right to tell us what will bring our real Happiness, our real joy, our real satisfaction, and He knows best. That is why we want to uphold the dignity of our gender, the dignity of our marriages, the dignity of lifelong monogamous commitment, the dignity of celibacy if perhaps we find ourselves not within the context of a one-man, one-woman marriage covenant. These are good things. 
These are life-giving things. These are joy-supplying, satisfying realities. And the Christian church has often failed to exalt the glory and beauty of these things because we find ourselves running around chasing all these arguments and people are nipping and biting and in hostility. We have failed to exalt the goodness of the Creator's good plan and purposes and celebrate the joy in life that it gives. We should be saying to our children, God made you and He did a good job when He made you. He didn't do anything wrong when He made you. There's nothing wrong with the way God has made you. His plans for you are good plans. Your greatest joy will be in walking in obedience to the God who has made you, not believing that your real joy is outside of His will and purposes. This is the root cause. Now listen, you can take that and apply it across any spectrum of issue or, or topic. I don't care what the subject is. Fundamentally, at our core, we are broken in the sense that we don't really believe that it's true that God's ways are best. But in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, we are restored into the understanding that He is remaking us, renewing us into His image such that we learn to love His ways and love His truth. So what should we do? We're talking about presenting symptoms, root causes. What about treatment? What about treatment? What should we do about this? Now, I'm not aiming in one occasion to lay out a, a, a full uh, diatribe against all of these things and say everything that could be possibly said because much that needs to be said needs to be said by way of personal conversation and not pulpit declarations necessarily, but this must be said by way of pulpit declarations. What should we do? Three things. One, in an age of expressive individualism, in an age where the self is the highest authority and no one can tell me what to do, where everything is subjectively determined, where everything is to me, we need objective authority to ground us in reality. We need God's truth to tell us what is true and what is real. Just like it doesn't make any sense for you to say, to me, gravity means this. I don't care what gravity means to you. Gravity is gravity. It has effect upon you whether or not you subjectively feel like it. It is objectively a reality. We must, as the Christian church, Learn the body of truth and the scriptures that God has given to us because we cannot passively sit back assuming that all is well and assuming that everyone is just going to embrace everything we believe because that's just the way we were raised. We must be actively teaching with intentionality. God made you. Your gender is God's good gift. There's nothing wrong with it. You need to learn into yourself the identity of God's goodness as He created you. Israel was told the importance of this reality when they were told, look, you must teach this to the next generation. Listen to what, listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 31 at verse 12. He says this, Assemble the people, men and women, and little ones, the children, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of the law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to know the Lord 
your God as long as you live in the land. We have to teach. The Christian church cannot be out-taught. Our children cannot be out-catechized by the secular creed. They must be catechized according to God's truth. So we must teach the truth. And by learning the truth, we will be equipped to interrogate what has become the dominant and unquestioned narrative of our cultures on meaning, money, sex, power, politics, gender, and everything else. And what I am saying is that the Christian faith offers a more reasonable more comprehensive and more satisfying view of the world that God has made according to His design rather than in contradiction to it. The Christian faith is, in other words, beautiful. It's beautiful. And the ethics of it are beautiful and life-giving and joy-giving and satisfying. First, issues of authority. Secondly, issues of community. That Because community is now so often digital... We have evacuated the notion of proximity and presence when we say things like online community. What does that even mean? For all of human history, the word community has been associated with flesh and blood presence. And in the community of the people of God, we must provide a distinct church community of loving embrace that looks you in the eye, says, I am glad that you are here, I want to tell you the truth and tell you that you belong here. You belong here. I see you and I care about you. The thing that I'm concerned about is that oftentimes people will pursue other so-called communities because they think they are more loving than the church. The church of Jesus Christ is to be the loving, truthful, embrace of what God has designed so that the person who is a cross-pressured questioner who needs a place for conversation and question asking in a social order focused on safe places, the church should be the safest place to ask a question and get an answer. A clear answer that is full of love and to foster this, we cannot be quick to overreact or quick with a quip or cliche that presents a dead end when someone is genuinely seeking. Now listen, speaking especially to my generation and younger, not to offend you if you're older, but we have this desire to just dunk on everything that we think is stupid. You know what I mean when I say that. Just mock it, because that's the easy route. I'm saying it's intellectually lazy to do that. Ideas, questions need to be engaged with the truth of God's Word, not just mocked and dismissed so that people who really don't know can come into an understanding of what the Bible says. The public square is far too full of people yelling at each other to even have a chance at listening. The church needs to be a community that incubates Christian virtue like kindness. Where even though you may disagree with me, I'm going to go greet you, shake you, shake your hand, look you in the eye and say, I am glad that you are here. Not shake you, but shake your hand. I'm glad you're here. Authority, community, and finally, we must be gospel people, gospel people. And this is a word 
to us all, but especially those of us who cling to Jesus Christ as He's offered to us in the Gospel. Listen, you are, as a Christian believer, accepted in Jesus Christ. Sinner though you are, if your greatest concern is being accepted in the eyes of other people, if your deepest desire is to be approved writ large by all spectrum of all people, if you will do whatever it takes to please people, you will feel the pressure to concede the uniqueness and beauty and glory of the Christian faith. If your highest end is to please people rather than God, you will concede. And you've misunderstood the gospel. You don't have enough resources to purchase the approval of everyone in your life. And you don't need them. You have acceptance in Jesus Christ. God has accepted you. And only in the gospel will you hear, you will not purchase acceptance. God will give it to you freely. Everywhere else, acceptance is on the basis of purchasing. Doing the right things, saying the right things, dressing the right way, believing the right things. Only in the gospel are you accepted only on the basis of Christ and not Yourself. So that means, Christian believer, listen to me very carefully, you are going to be misunderstood. And you must simply come to terms with it and be okay at the end of the day with people not understanding the peculiarities of a pilgrim faith, of a kingdom people, of a sovereign king. You just must learn at the end of the day that if God has accepted you in Christ, the approval of everybody else is not your greatest priority. If God accepts you in Jesus Christ, then you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 6, what can man do to me? So, dear friends, this is not at the end of the day just an out there issue. It is an in here issue, remembering that the Christian church uh, it needs to be kept from degenerating into modern-day Pharisees by thinking that the problem of the world is the problem out there, not fundamentally a problem in here. You and I are on our own, by our nature, not okay. Our maladies, however they manifest, must be confessed and surrendered to the Savior who promises new life and transformation in the kingdom of His grace. And that kingdom is open to everyone, but also only those who come to bow their knee before Jesus Christ and surrender to Him all things so that they realize that their true identity is being shaped and renewed in Him rather than a self-authenticating anti-institutional authority Jesus gets to say. So, what of strawberries? Remember the beginning? What of strawberries? We can either keep our children out of the strawberry patches and continue to give them slushies. Or we can lead them by the hand into the strawberry patch again and again and again, giving them this beautiful, satisfying truth until they learn to know that it is sweet and true and good and nutritious and lovely. Until they learn to love the sweetness of it. Proverbs 22, verse 28 says, Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. And we endeavor by God's grace to believe the Word of our God, the Word of our Creator, who knows what will bring us 
our greatest joy and satisfaction and happiness. People of God, we must be convicted of this truth that He knows what is best. Let's pray. Gracious God, we humbly bow before You and ask that You would give to us wisdom from above. We need it to navigate our time and place, but it has always been true, Lord, that Your church exists as pilgrim people in a peculiar age. Oh, Father, because Your truth never changes, may we who so often feel the shifting sands around us hold fast to the truth that is Jesus Christ alone. We pray, bless us as we seek to do this faithfully with grace and love in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.